Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago. We got a great show today, and we're going to jump right out of the box into our first music clip. Dan Humiston, hit it for us, please. Doing that rag, Fillmore 1969, we could talk hours about this, and in fact, we might. But before we do that, I'm going to uh, turn everything over to my uh, co-host, Rob Hunt. Rob, we missed you last week. Uh, We're glad you're back, and uh, tell us, the listeners, what we're talking about today. Well, great to be back. I'm your absentee co-host, Rob Hunt. Uh, Having missed the last three out of four shows, Larry, it's nice to be back, and I appreciate you guys putting up with my travel schedule recently. Um, yeah, I mean, for a theme today, I figured we'd go with a little bit of a, a gambling theme. Everyone knows the Grateful Dead has an affinity for having gambling lyrics in uh, in their songs, and you know, doing that rag is a is a great example of it. Um, so we're really fortunate today to have our guest as Tim Seymour from CNBC. Tim happens to have grown up in my same hometown of Scarsdale, New York, and uh, he and I got to know each other a couple of years back. But we've been trying to get together to do something like this for quite a while. Uh, really pleased that he was able to take time out of his schedule to come join us for a little bit of time to talk about the Grateful Dead, cannabis, and growing up in Westchester as a deadhead and a music lover. So, Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. What a great intro, and what a what a great history um, that we have had, uh, and and exciting to be. Uh, on this podcast, which combines uh, so many loves of mine and, and to have a conversation where we can go back in time and, and actually look forward on the industry. So great to be here. Thanks. Well, you know, Tim, it's, uh, it's interesting because you and I didn't know each other until a couple of years ago. And as it turns out, we grew up in the same hometown. And as it turns out, I think about 50 yards away from each other. And uh, I used to use your yard as my, uh, my sneak through to, uh, to get to friends' houses when there's a lot of shortcuts in Scarsdale, New York. You were my shortcut. And it was uh, long before you and I knew each other. So when we finally met, we put it together that not only from the same town, but we're in the same industry. And um, we also uh, uh, enjoy the same pursuits musically. It was great, you know. So uh, this is so much fun for me because I finally get to have you on the show. And, um, you know, there's so much shared history of things that we did in the same town just six years apart from each other. So, Tim, I, I know you lived really close to the fore and aft. How often did you make it over there? And what shows did you see at that spot? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I'd say I probably got to the aft. You know, I, it feels like I would go to the aft once every couple months, but maybe it was more frequent. I mean, but I'd started seeing concerts in, in the city and, and obviously MSG, uh, the self-proclaimed world's most famous arena, was uh, you know home to my first major arena concert. And this was after seeing Chicago as my first concert ever. Um, at Woolman Rink in 1975, and and again, I, I you know Chicago to me was just you know a, a great band, and and you know my older siblings loved it, and uh, it was they, they used to have this, I think it was called the Dr Pepper Concert Series in Woolman Rink, and it was amazing, and for I think it was two fifty or four fifty a ticket. Um, you know, you, you, you checked out, there was a lot of great bands, but my first arena show, uh, 1977, um, was Kiss. Um, and, and of course, uh, went with the babysitter from next door, Dave Bagwell. So Bags was, uh, probably, I don't know, I'm guessing he was 19 or 20. I, you know, like, I just thought he was a nice guy. I don't really know what his, what his game was. Um, our families were close. They had older kids. 
we had younger kids and I was with my, my older brothers, Mike, and Chris. Um, and I, like, it's the first time I ever really saw anybody smoking pot, um, and had some sense of what it was. Um, and, and so there was a dude looked like a biker dude, you know, as far as I remember, him, you know, he was like a hell's angels guy. Um, and you know, passed the pipe down and it wasn't, and it wasn't, and it, and it looked like a traditional, um, pipe, almost like the kind your dad might smoke in his library. Um, but instead of having just a, you know, like a, a corn cob hollowed out bowl or something, it was like this sick skull. And, uh, I remember watching, watching bags get a little uncomfortable, um, definitely refused. We all refused, <laughs> but, but that was, that was the first experience. And, and I'll tell you what, um, coming back, uh, and I'm guessing I was, um, let's see, I was probably 11. So what does that make me? That makes me sixth grade. And, and I remember coming back to school the next day and I think it was the love gun tour. Um, and you know, maybe it wasn't, maybe it wasn't, but that's such a great name for a tour, um, sure. that, you know, why, why not? But, uh, I do remember my, my kiss, my kiss shirt. And I probably, I swear to God, guys, I probably still might have it. I definitely have a collection of about 20, uh, old concert t-shirts that look like they're made out of cheesecloth, but I, you know, I kept them. Uh, my parents kept them in the house I grew up in and they just moved out of that house in Scarsdale, by the way, uh, about two months ago, which was a, a museum. But, um, yeah. And so I, I just remember saying to my buddies, guys, the air was so thick. You could cut it with a knife. I remember saying that. I mean, it was <laughs> ridiculous, but it was fun. Absolutely. That I think those early concerts always are the best for people. And they kind of, Set the way a little bit, although, as you were mentioning, my first concert ever was Chicago. I saw Boston early on and REO Speedwagon growing up in St. Louis. And then when I finally saw The Who in 1980, then I felt I kind of graduated to the big boy music club. Yeah, it, it's it. Look, um, as mentioned, one of five, three older siblings, um, two who were pretty, pretty you know, pretty advanced on the music. My older brother, Chris, I don't really know what his deal was. I don't know why he really didn't, you know, and by the way, it was interesting because we would, you know, there was serious overlap in the vinyl in the house. Like what happens if one of your siblings buys, you know, Boston's first album um, or Boston two for that matter, can you not get it yourself? So, I mean, the vinyl collections in, in duplicate in our house were going on. And every once in a while, like one would disappear from my room and I'd find it on Mike's turntable, um, you know, et cetera. So um, I, I do know that, that uh, you know, buying music and advancing into the big boy club listening wise um, was something that at least I did have some older sibling influences, which helped. Um, by the way, nothing like going down to that record world, Rob in the uh, in the old white plains mall where the, the the mcdonald's was right across the way um and uh i think that's where i got i definitely where i got uh, my first grateful dead album because i i think i got uh, i got terrapin on a cutout if you remember that they used to have these albums they called them cutouts uh i guess they weren't selling i'm not really sure what it is but they they'd actually like they cut into it, right? They cut off the corner right. of, of like the uh, of the of, of of the record cover, and then sell it for like twenty five percent less. Yeah, those are the ones that were supposed to be returned to the record company. Is that what it was? I, I should know this. Um, yeah, I always thought that it was um, the record company would put them out there, and if you actually didn't do a sell through, you cut the corners off and you'd return them back to the record company, and they'd inevitably like get poached by you know some sort of gangster that would put them into second stores. But uh, but it was you know a telltale sign that you were getting a. Um, 
something that shouldn't have been resold. Well, and, and in the case of, in the case of the dead, um, I, I, I think not just Terrapin, but I want to say like wake of the flood or, I mean, I feel like a few of their albums went cut out. And, and to me, that was kind of like some kind of, you know, you know, I don't know. It, it was, a, it was, it was some disparagement. It was a blemish. You know, it was, it was something that basically said this album sucked, you know? And, and, and I, and I think I used to have some kind of preset understanding like, like, or, or sense that, you know, maybe this album wasn't really that good. Uh, now in the case of Terrapin, that is clearly not the case. Um, right. And, and so I, I just, you know, I just don't know. But I mean, I know like, like the Beatles, let it be like, let it be. And I, I probably bought them around the same time and, you know, let it be, uh, was a cutout and it was hard to believe it was a Beatles out. They could get like at a total discount. But, um, but anyway, that's, you know, we're, we're getting into and for the record. That album doesn't suck either. What they cost and the world that just doesn't exist anymore. Although I know vinyl's making a comeback. So Tim, uh, I don't know if you did it, but for me, on the way to dead shows at MSG, oftentimes we'd take Metro North, which meant we'd inevitably stop down through um, either Gun Hill Road or stop down through Fordham Road or one of the other sketchy places in the Bronx to uh, to pick up party favors before going into the city. Was that you know your MO for you and your crew as well? So, um, so by the way, my first dead show was 79 Nassau Coliseum. My sister drove us in the back of, you know, I believe this was a, silver Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. And, uh, and it was myself and I think, you know, my three best friends who, who were also deadheads who are still deadheads. And we were all kind of like going down this road together. Um, and, and, you know, we knew it was cool to be going to a dead show. We also knew we really didn't know what we were getting into. And, and we, we also didn't, like, I didn't really know the music that well. Uh, to be clear. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think this was probably, uh, went to, there was this place in white plains called the Oliant. That, yes, that's what it was called. I'm not mispronouncing it. Um, and it's called the Oliant. And I think that's where I got my first water pipe. Um, and, and, uh, and, and look, I'm not even sure, you know, I, I realized that, that Clinton said, you know, he never inhaled. I mean, I'm not sure. I don't know what I was doing on, on that, on that, you know, on that trip, uh, on that first dead show. But, um, but anyway, it was uh, 79 Nassau Coliseum. Uh, that was my first dead show. And, and um, I'm proud to say that I, I think based upon that, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, 2000s and 20s, I realized that this is a slightly different outfit. Um, although I was uh, at City, City Field last Friday night for um for dead and co so that was uh you know kind of coming full circle yes it is what well, uh, let me ask you this now in your position you know with cnbc and the, the the folks that you have access to and hang out with i assume that there is a whole kind of sub community of people whose names most of us would know which i'm not asking you to reveal but who probably are stoners and, and enjoy that as their way of uh, relaxing or uh, blowing off steam at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think, you know, obviously it's, it's, you know, the world has changed so much on this in terms of perceptions and, and um, you know, what's, you know, what's truly, you know, medicating, especially in a world where the cannabis industry is, is uh, you know, there's a medical market, there's, there's a rec market. Um, and, you know, effectively when people are drinking, uh, uh, 
let's stay let's stay back in the 70s and in, in my dad's fridge when my dad's drinking a Schaefer at the end of the night and the and the ad slogan by the way was the one beer to have when you're having more than one <laughs> <laughs> right i remember that um but so I, I just think perceptions have changed. People recognize that there's, there's uh, um, obviously from a legality perspective, cannabis is effectively legal. Um, it's certainly been decriminalized uh, in this country for the most part, and and that not that big a deal. And and everybody really um, has different ways in which they unwind. And look, let's face it: in the world of finance and and Wall Street and and whatnot, um, you know, there's there's plenty of. Um, you know, folks that they probably should be unwinding a lot more than they do. Um, but, but yeah, I, I would say just like, um, I've been on CNBC for 15 years. Uh, it's, it's been really a, a, a wonderful experience surrounded by really smart, talented people, um, who are very creative, very interesting, uh, in many cases have great taste in music. Of course, in many cases have terrible taste in music. Um, but, but, um, yeah, I, I'd say, I'd say there's, I think, there's all kinds of people out there that are finding ways to unwind and, and doing it differently and, and maybe doing it differently than they did when they were growing up. You know, but I still think it's important. And I, and I love the fact that even just in casual conversation like this, that, you know, you're willing to share some of these stories because one of the concerns that I've always had is this idea of normalization. And when are we going to get to a point where somebody doesn't have to be shamed or embarrassed if they go to a party and smoke a joint instead of having a, a drink or two. Well, for sure. And, and look again in, in the environment we're in, uh, I think there's, uh, as much of people that show up at a party and are embarrassed to not have a hit off a joint, um, because they're just, you know, they, they don't know what, uh, yeah, they, there's, there's fear. There's, there's, uh, you know, they're not embarrassed. Um, right. and, and I think, you know, the way the, the, the industry has evolved and public perception and, and, uh, education, I mean, obviously, you know, education around the plant and, and, and what's going on with people understanding, uh, what the effects are, what the, you know, the risks are, um, and whatnot. I think it's changed, but I, like, I, I think this, I, I think the stigma is, is largely done. You know, I mean, I, I realize that's not in some circles and I realize, um, in, in certain demos, it's still, uh, very much frowned upon, but, but I, look in New York city in just a professional intellectual, you know, successful group of, of folks that are not kids and are not people that were at Woodstock, you, you know, cannabis is, is been thriving for a long time. Um, and thriving in a way where lawyers are, are getting high before writing a big brief or, um, you know, people are, are, are certainly finding ways to, to again, to, to, to use the plant to not just allow them to relax, but um, to maybe, you know, be able to, right, explore creative sides and, and things that they haven't had a chance to do. Obviously, uh, as a sleep aid and, and, uh, I think for a lot of people, again, back to people that can't relax and unwind, um, cannabis has proven, you know, the efficacy. So anyway, again, I, you know, I, I living in New York city, I just don't think that there's a real stigma growing up. There was a stigma growing up. There was obviously uh, a stoner dynamic, um, that frankly, I, I didn't ever want to be tabbed as um and 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 i actually don't think it would have even been fair 
in the definition of what it was at the time. But I think, again, I, I my alcoholic beverage of choice is probably like Coors Light um, and tequila. Um, and and but the reason I drink Coors Light is because it's microdosing, right? I mean, I, I can have, or it's boat water, depending on, you know, where you come from. Um, and, you know, I can drink seven or eight Coors Lights, you know, over the course of, you know, some reasonable amount of time, not in an hour um, or 30 minutes, but, uh, and, and, and still be in control and still be, you know, what, what I believe is very much um, lucid. And, and I like that, right? I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of how I roll. Um, and I, I'm just not sure um, that, you know, a lot of people are, are, I think, let's put it this way. I, I think there are a lot of people that are, are looking for, that uh, experience in cannabis, by the way. Um, and I think that's something that is one of the major, major uh, addressable market demos that is is where cannabis is going to find itself um, significantly uh, making, you know, it's it's kind of its next move. I, I think it's it's plenty, of, there are plenty of people out there that have no issues with uh, the drug conceptually, have no issues with uh, what they believe are the physical dynamics. It's truly about controlling the buzz and it's truly about being in control. Um, and I think that's something that, that uh, we're getting to. Not even sure how we got to this part on this on the show, but you guys are doing a good job of letting me talk and I'll, I'll, I'll find myself in 15 different topics. Yeah, I think, I mean, the stigma is definitely clearly gone when you think about like what CEO pay is like right now. And I don't know if you saw the article that just came out in MJ Business Week about the exorbitant pay that some of these CEOs have, but, you know, guys like Abner Curtin that run, you know, decent companies, but not, you know, huge companies are taking $15 million in total compensation home. Uh, you know, guys from, from, you know, mid-sized companies like Plant 13, you know, Larry and Bob are both taking home, you know, pretty massive pays, um, uh, packages as well. And obviously it's not just salary. It's also, you know, options packages and, um, and bonuses and, and, and straight stock. But, you know, for the stigma to be gone, you know, as a plant, it's certainly gone as far as, you know, the, the companies that are forming around it, feeling that they're, you know, playing kind of with the big boys and taking home comp packages that, uh, that, that are commensurate with what you see in other industries. And, you know, going back to the Grateful Dead, it kind of reminds me of the opening, you know, the opening line of Half Step with, you know, you, you had a mark just as plain as day. It could not be denied that these guys are, are you know, writing their own paper and kind of um, gaming the system, you know. So going back to a gambling theme, uh, you know, it, it, it certainly strikes me as, as very appropriate. So, you know, Dan, maybe you've got a clip of the, uh, the half step we had queued up on this. Okay, so what I just want to say really fast here, Tim, before you dive into what Rob was asking you about, this is what I tell people about marijuana. We know we're here because these are the type of stories you read about regular businesses, you know, big multi-million dollar businesses that trade on Wall Street and the New York Stock Exchange. And now we're talking about it with marijuana companies. Well, for sure. Um, by the way, I think the first time I heard Half Step 
Um, it was on Steal Your Face, which I picked up in a secondhand record shop. Um, and it was, so it wasn't on Wake of the Flood. Um, and uh, I, I fell in love with that song right away. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's got such a groove. Um, I'm, a, I'm a drummer, by the way, and uh, just, you know, truly, you know, the half step. I mean, the, the, the tempo of that song is is fantastic. That was 5777 from Boston Garden, which is kind of like the redheaded stepchild uh, next to Cornell the next night. Nice, nice. But I, I'm, I'm embarrassingly um, ignorant on, you know, my bootlegs and, and, let's just get this out there right away. I, I think I still prefer, you know, the studio or, or, or the live you know, show from the studio. And I know that's sacrilege. So guys don't, don't hang up on me here. Um, but I definitely just don't have the library and, or the ability to make that recall that you just did. I mean, that's unbelievable. Um, and, uh, uh, I probably feel like there's, uh, of course, a whole untapped world for me out there one of these days. Well, Tim, we call that, you know, being a dead nerd. And Rob and I are very good at that. But that means that we've been spending a lot of time doing that instead of something else, um, which worked has worked for us so far. But, you know, I think that the real key is not so much the details that we know, but we like hearing everybody else's, uh, you know, experiences and the concerts and the venues that they like to see because that's the best part about being a deadhead. You know, I, I never got to make it to the Capitol theater in Port Chester to see the grateful dead, but I got to go last year and see Phil Lesh. But before that I heard Rob talking about it nonstop and that really made me curious to go out there and check it out. So, you know, these stories you're telling are just as good because they're different ones than ours and just more to the rich history of the uh, group of deadheads. No, that's awesome, uh, and I appreciate that. And you're right. I mean, obviously, it, it's how um, everybody everybody experiences things differently. Um, one of the things that I also found a little frustrating, let's just say, about listening to the Dead growing up is that my best friend, uh, Peter Rockland, and Pete, I'm sure you're listening out there somewhere, um, <laughs> who I who I still I see today. He lives in Westchester, but he's he's uh, he's in he's in the city and um, he's a fantastic dude and was a guy that we were inseparable, like in, especially in middle school. Um, but then he, he, you know, he really went hard into the dead and, and at some point was only listening to the dead. And, and, and I, I, it was, you know, I, I still wanted to listen to the who I still wanted to listen to Zeppelin. I still wanted to listen to Boston um, you know, and then look, as, uh, as, as new wave was coming in, I was, and, and punk and I was listening to the clash and, the, you know, I've probably been to 30 Ramon shows. Wow, um, that's what we should be talking about. And that, that might make me in a, the minority on, uh, uh, on this podcast, but, but the dead were always musically, um, for me such, you know, such an escape and such a wonderful, uh, experience. And, and so, um, I, I almost got turned off by like the need and the judgment of listening to, you know, have to listen to only the dead and the judgment that came with listening to other music. So, uh, you know, I'm um, sorry about that, Pete. I still love you. Um, but you're probably still, uh, in fact, he's probably listening to that half step from Boston. Um, Rob, he probably knows exactly what you were just keying up. Um, I'll tell you one more story about high school and my, my buddies, by the way, Pete, Peter, uh, and, uh, 
two other guys, Gene Rader and Billy Safian, made up my uh, my high school band. We were called the Apathetics. Um, with an X, of course, right? Like they had to spell it with an X. Um, and, and, um, so we were, we were bridging that kind of that punk new wave thing, but we covered, we definitely covered a bunch of dead songs. Um, trying to think what our best one, we, you know, we covered Shakedown, we covered Sugar Mag. Um, I'm trying to think what else we did. No Franklin's Tower. That's a great, now why did you, why, why did you presume we covered Franklin's? Is that because every high school band because does high that? school bands, it's such an easy riff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it, and and you can it it abs it, it was probably the third dead song we played, um and 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 it was great. So one last story about my high school boys and my early dead shows. Uh, we were going to see the Dead at the Garden. I think I'm a sophomore in high school. This is probably eighty two or eighty three, maybe um, as a junior, and uh, um, we were, you know, we were cocktailing before and i think we were we were drinking i don't know we were drinking screwdrivers or something um and and something. we were we were i don't you know i don't know where we got them i'm sure we were we were definitely drinking them on the train on metro north rob so there's no question somebody somebody <laughs> looted somebody's parents liquor cabinet um and we were drinking warm screwdrivers and we were feeling no pain um and we were running late and we were coming from Grand Central and we, I guess, I don't, I don't think we, we walked from Grand Central I think we might've taken the subway, but as we were say at 36th street and seventh and running cause, uh, you know, we knew the band was going to open soon. Um, and we're perched at a street corner waiting for the walk sign. Um, as it went walk, um, and we start running, my buddy Dino, um, elbows me, um, right in the eye, like flailing elbows, like running, like one of these guys that runs, like just throwing bows, like not intentionally, but, but, um, and, and, but by the way, I can still hear him saying, ow, what, you know, what's your face doing in the way of my elbow or something like that. <laughs> um, and meanwhile, my, my eye is starting to close, uh, and, 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 but I'm feeling no pain. Um, and we got to get in there. And I, I still remember coming in and, and, and hearing the beginning of Jack Straw. And, and just like, you know, the beginning of Jackstraw takes me back there every time um, to a place that was, um, despite the, the black eye, um, at that moment was just exciting. And, 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 you know, a song I knew and loved also. Um, uh, by the fifth or sixth song, and certainly after a couple long jams, I was throwing up in my seat <laughs> and, and, and um, not proud of this. Um, and somehow survived that show. Somehow the people around me survived that show. Um, and I remember taking the train home on Metro North with a black guy and puke stains corduroys. Um, they were probably like light, light blue corduroys. Um, and, uh, mom and dad were happy to see you (laughs) getting, getting propped up at my back door by one of my buddies who probably rang the doorbell and, uh, Ran. uh, ran away. So there you go. Well, that's good stuff. You know, the Grateful Dead will do that to people, especially uh, younger people. Um, and that's all part of the fun that, you know, eventually gets us to. <laughs> but, but that's normally nitrous, Larry. <laughs> yes, I, I don't disagree with that either. So we're talking a little bit about the industry. And um, yeah, and and I appreciate you referencing all the, the Grateful Dead gambling songs. And, and you guys would know this better than me. I mean, um, what what is... What what is the the song count with some kind of a reference to 
aces, loaded dice, stand and pat, you know, whatever. If if not, you know, the the obvious ones like loser or um, staggerly or you know. So what's the number? I'll ask you guys. I camp with sixteen. Got it. So I'll, I'll rattle them off. You got Ramble on Rose, Scarlet Pagodios, Deal, Stella Blue, Doing That Rag, Candyman, Direwolf, Stagger Lee, Tennessee Jed, Throne Stones, Mississippi Half Step, Loser, Me and My Uncle, Here Comes Sunshine, and What Am I Missing, Larry? There's one other one. That, uh, there's a second one in Half Step. There's a, there's a second line that's... Did you say China Cat? So I didn't. Yeah. But uh, the funny thing about it... Is I thought most of the songs were definitely cards, but there's actually quite a bit of uh, of dice, and uh, and there's actually a little bit of pool. So they cover the gamut. I mean, and then it's a question of whether horse racing's in there too, with like betting on long shots. But you know, I always when I ever think about the, the Grateful Dead and gambling, I always assume it's just card games. But uh, but there's there's a lot of dice. Like Staggerly is dice. Um, Candyman is dice. Uh, the um, let's see, a couple of them are are dice. So it's uh, surprising to me. Uh, Throne stones, roll them bones. Is, is dice. There you go. True. There you go. Yeah, you don't want to be throwing throwing loaded dice to you. So while we got you, uh, safe just passed again for the seventh time. I, I don't think has a chance in the world of making it through the Senate. I, I always look at like sort of um, the House is uh, is Charlie Brown and the Senate is Lucy with the football, but. You know, what are your thoughts? Do you think this thing was going through this time? So, I, I you know, I'm I'm very careful to prognosticate on this, especially with my, uh, you know, kind of market participants hat, market pundits hat, and even as a guy that runs uh, an ETF, and I, I, you know, I've always been really cautious to not be overly promotional or or whatnot, and and um, and have to be from a regulatory perspective. Um, I, I I think that there's been too much focus on the federal legislation path for the market um, of cannabis. And so for investing in cannabis, I'm, it doesn't surprise me, but you know, that's really not why I'm investing. And, and, and I actually believe that there's going to be that moment. Um, I'm not exactly sure how we're going to get to that next level of federalization, but I do think that there's a case um, to be made that, the, the progress over the last 18 months or since everybody did cartwheels when the Georgia runoff gave the Dems a majority in seemingly in the Senate, that the presumption was that cannabis legislation would come flying through um, and cannabis asset prices went through the roof. And, you know, we kind of know the rest of the story. If you've been investing in cannabis, um, February 9th was the, the peak of the markets and it's been down ever since. Um, and it's been down um, with some really bad, um, I would just say, kind of whipsaws around expectations that there was a legislative uh, moment coming. Um, and a lot of people have gotten pulled into that. And I think you have to be very careful. Um, I will say um, passing safe banking in the House seven times um, is a function of um, that the House has been supportive on cannabis legislation really for, for at least the last few years. Um, and, and that also it, it's, it's, you know, clear that you're, you know, you're waiting for uh, a couple different dynamics to take place within the Senate. And some of them are not just, you know, politics as usual, but some of them are going to allow a process to play out where I, I do think that, and for example, cannabis as a 
plant that has no research around it um, because it's been a schedule one drug has is made it very difficult for uh, more conservative leaning uh, senators to even consider legislation because there, there, there needs to be some kind of olive branch in off the edge of uh, uh, the view that, look, this is, you know, this is the devil's weed. This is bad. This is that. It's a, it's a gateway drug. You know what, Tim, that's the, that's the catch 22, isn't it? First of all, they have to be able to review it and research it to understand it, but they can't research and understand it because it's schedule one. So it, 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 it perpetuates this idea that no, we're never going to get to it. And we don't know anything about it, but we do know a lot about it. And we, there's other countries that have done extensive studies. Israel and Raphael Meshulam have been studying cannabis for 60 years. And these guys have medical reports on it. But more important than that, every time I hear somebody talk about it, it causes schizophrenia, all I can think of is I've gotten high for a long time. I know a lot of people in my life who I've either gotten high with or who I know that get high. I've never once ever heard of anybody developing schizophrenia directly resulting from marijuana. I'm not saying it can't happen, but it's not like known deaths from cigarettes where we have lung cancer and all these things that we can point to. And I, I think that it's it's difficult for people to accept the fact that it's maybe not quite so dangerous as they would like us to think. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's amazing also how the same people can apply logic to uh, an argument against making the connection from, you know, or the linkage from one thing to another. But when it comes to cannabis, um, you know, these are the same guys that might say, you know, in, in, some, in the context of something else, whether they're talking about stuff that we're fighting over all the time and, you know, second amendment or, you know, but, 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 but the guys that develop schizophrenia, there's a very decent likelihood that those guys um, didn't develop schizophrenia. They were seeking cannabis to help uh, treat yes. schizophrenia. Um, yes, and it's amazing how that those arguments, again, in other politically charged circles and discussions on whatever the issue is. But, I mean, a guy who, who has you know, done bad things with a gun is a guy that was going to do bad things anyway. You know, it has nothing to do with the gun. You know, so um, anyway. Um, I, I, I do think that the conversation, you know, back to legislation, back to the market, back to um, things people should be really encouraged about is that there was a research bill that went through unanimously in the Senate three months ago. Um, that, to me, is one of the greatest things that people don't talk about, um, because that, to me, leaving aside the practical reality of doing research and how important that is, um, that, to me, is that olive branch. So I actually think that you know, that that will allow um, a lot of folks just even the cover to get in off the edge. Um, and I think that's really important also for this discussion because there, there are politics as usual going on. But 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 I look, I I I'm, I'm, I said this on Fast Money tonight because uh, the rallying cannabis stocks came up and and uh, there's no question that part of a catalyst to cannabis stocks rallying is is you know the announcement that the schumer bill um was gonna you know be reintroduced uh this week now we all know that the bill as constructed is dead on arrival and i'm not really sure what's that different um about what's coming forth 
Um, but there has been a rally. And what I went on to say was also there's been a rally in global markets. And by the way, cannabis as a higher risk asset class and a growth industry um, is probably just rallying along with everything else right now. We could be doing this podcast in three weeks or two weeks um, and we could be you know, in a very different place for all markets. But um, my, my, my view is that I don't think we're getting safe banking this year. Um, I don't think we're getting it in, you know, at least before midterms or in a lame duck um, Congress session. Um, I do think that the conversation has progressed um, so significantly, um, not just in the House, but in the proper circles. And, and Cory Booker, um, at least, uh, you know, is I think it's was it the 26th? Maybe it's um, it's coming up. But but look, and it may even be later this week. Um, the conversation in in the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee is going to be, you know, around criminalization and, and things that um, are different than safe banking. Um, but the conversation is going to be about this bill. And it's going to be one of the first real conversations that's ever been had um, on the Senate floor. So let's be clear. Um, there's there's if you had told me three years ago, uh, the 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 legislative path that's taken so far and, and where we are removing the excitement and, and really the euphoria uh, around the Georgia runoff and just the view that, that cannabis was about to be fully federally legalized and descheduled um, and all that that means, including taxation for the companies and, and, and so things that are essential to have this industry be profitable. Um, if you remove all that excitement and you said, this is where we are, and you talked to me in 2019, and that includes the parade of states that have come online and the sophistication in which at least they've you know, begun to address not just you know, their, their own uh, adult and medical programs, but how they've dealt with some of the issues around it. I would have said, this is a pretty extraordinary place to be. And, and, and you know, on some level, maybe we're even ahead of the game. So, um, you know, I'm not going to prognosticate on when, you know, when, when this happens. Um, and really in what form it happens, because again, this is a very complicated issue around descheduling and what might need to be precursor. And we all know that there's uh, a lot of restitution to, to have happen. There's criminal justice, uh, reform around it. There is obviously social equity issues to, uh, provide and make sure that, certain communities and demographics and people that have been really most affected by the war on drugs are actually given a shot to, to, to really, um, to succeed here. Um, so, you know, these are all things that we, uh, I'm sure all on this podcast recognize are, are important elements and it's a complicated issue. And, and by the way, imagine introducing four or five federal agencies, uh, into the mix to try to work through stuff that includes not just, you know, the, the DEA, but the the EPA, obviously the FDA, FinCEN, well, Treasury, IRS. I mean, it's 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 complicated. Well, Tim, it's it's very complicated, you know. And and part of the problem is trying to deal with all of these different avenues of government that come along and want to address. And you know, one of the big issues we've talked about on this show is the FDA taking the position in 2018 shortly after the farm bill was passed uh, when they came in and said, Hey, guess what, everybody, we now have administrative authority over this and we're going to step in and we can't, we can't authorize the use of CBDs in edibles for human consumption. We've never tested it before. We don't know if it's safe. And it was more of this, like, 
oh, we woke up this morning and here's a new product that nobody's ever seen before. We have to treat it as though it's from, you know, square one. And I'm afraid the same thing's going to happen with marijuana when they get to that point. And that to me is where people have to wake up and say, hey, look, this is really nonsense. We know it's safe. We know it's not going to kill people. Then there may be things that we can learn about it over time. But to play these games and to try and hold it back, because now we have administrative jurisdiction, and so we want to get some relevancy. And that's what I've run into with the uh, of FTC as well, who went after one of my clients saying that a, an ad that they had on uh, CBD was too suggestive of its medical efficacy. And it wasn't just a matter of citing them, but the level that they went to to punish them and the, and the severity of the financial penalty basically put them out of business. And my argument with them the whole time was, why are you, I, I understand if you need to make sure that what is said is okay, but why are you going out of your way to put this company out of business? And they just, oh, no, this is what we do with everybody. I said, I don't think so. Right. Yeah. Why did, why did you wreck this company? Because it was wreckable. Um, I hate to, hate to elicit the Michael Douglas and Charlie Sheen. Um, and, of course, that great movie, Wall Street. But um, no, I, I, you're right. I mean, there, there is a level of punitive, uh, uh, you know, dynamics and, um, you know, it's, it, it's pretty amazing what's going on in the hemp world and the CBD world and, and uh, how many people are set up to fail. And that includes even in places like Kentucky, you know? Um, so it's kind of shocking that um, the games that are played on the, on the federal level, uh, and, and, and that's why, you know, I, I, I'm cautious about where we go. I'm not cautious about what's going on within the industry. Um, the size of the addressable market that continues to grow and grow, um, the perception change, uh, thank God the real focus on, uh, you know, what needs to change on criminal justice. And we, we started the show. I'm talking about you know, Rob and I grew up <laughs> 50 yards from each other. Um, and, you know, like I, I had no idea growing up what was going on when, with, with where uh, drugs were, people turned, you know, turned a blind eye and where people got arrested and got arrested for, for, for life changing amounts of time um, for the same offense. And, and uh, one of the, the really important parts of being involved in this industry for me was as a guy that I'd like to have thought that I've always, you know, been, been, uh, you know, socially pretty, pretty aware. And I, I don't know, I'm a New Yorker and, you know, I live amongst diversity and um, embrace it. And, but, but really the disproportionate justice against, uh, you know, the minority community, the black and brown community as it relates to criminal justice. And, 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 you know, people who are reading the newspaper every day don't know this. And, 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 and so, um, you know, some really important social things that are going on here. And, and I realize that, you know, there's some good things about all the craziness that's going on in the world today, but um, I do think there's a, a different social awareness that cannabis has just been a small part um, it's been complementary and an ingredient in, you know, the, the kind of battles that are being fought uh, on, you know, in social uh, in social justice um, across you know, gender and race and, you know, uh, 
all of these places that are pretty live conversations out there and seem like they're as live as they've ever been at any time in my life. Yeah, for sure. But, but, you know, I watch the, uh, the retail investors right now and every time you see, you know, safe pass or some other piece of legislation that looks like it's going to pass all the retail investors pile back into the market thinking that they're, um, they're going to get what they're looking for. And we've seen it, you know, not just uh, February 9th last year after the transition of the, uh, the, the Senate, but you've seen it every single time a piece of legislation looks like it's getting ready to, uh, to go forward. And it always reminds me of um, of the, the protagonist in the song Loser, of just always thinking that, you know, the next hands you're winning hands. You're, you're always just about to get it, only to find out that, you know, it's, it's no different than the last hands and that, you know, you've, you've, again, lost one more time. So, you know, I kind of had the, the whole safe banking, you know, uh, tied to the rally today, you know, cued in and tied into how I feel about the, uh, the song Loser. So, you know, Dan, maybe you cue up a little bit of that from uh, 324.90 from Knickerbocker Arena. Absolutely love that version. That's uh, three twenty four ninety from the Nick, and it's probably one of the most powerful losers that have been played. Yeah, it's a sweet it's a one. Version. Come to come to daddy. One of the great melodic. You know, I just you know that that is that's a great one for sure. And uh, yeah, I, I you know the retail investor and their role in all of this um, is interesting. Obviously, seemingly institutional investors and and. Uh, uh, pension funds and you know more uh you know, should we say yeah sophisticated investors and i don't mean to be uh you know denigrating the retail reddit crowd um it's just, i'm just kind of talking about how these groups are even just defined in market context and and cannabis has still been you know largely a retail investment there's family offices there are hedge funds there are institutions in it but um like the best thing that actually could happen is is really that that people I mean, I actually think it's bullish if if people just accept that there's nothing that's going to get done in this Congress, um, and that and that that maybe the messaging has been wrong. By the way, um, and you know, cannabis needs to stop apologizing in Washington, and needs to you know maybe handle itself a little bit more professionally. Uh, I'm actually going to be working on uh, a eight part series um, where we're going to be putting together video and a studio and, um, you know, polished conversations, um, to try to reposition the message in DC. Um, and, and I think cannabis needs to stop apologizing for you know the past and, and where, where it is now. And, um, you know, investors like, you know, back to like, you could tell me what the news is tomorrow. And I'm not even sure I could tell you what the cannabis market will do with that news. I know that sounds crazy. And yeah, oh, if you told me Tim. that they, you know, yeah, that they, they got rid of 280E and blah, blah, blah. Um, right. Yeah, it would go up. 
but I, I, I don't even know how sustainable that would be right away. But we saw that, right? In 2018, when Sessions came out and said, three days after California went legal, said, we're letting you know that we are terminating the coal memorandum. And prices dropped overnight. But the rest of us, I mean, the people who had been studying this, we knew it meant nothing. He was he was blowing his horn just because he was trying to give a counter message to California. And there was nothing in the coal memorandum that ever stopped them from going into the states in the first place. So he made a, a stupid comment, but people acted on it. And when you have your money, that's a big issue. For sure. No, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's the nature of uh, how this industry has been invested on a retail level. There's a lot of very smart investors that have also um, been investors and, and are uh, LPs and, and GPs and, and companies and are, are actually involved in, in the industry um, and have also lost a lot of money. <laughs> so, so we're not, yeah. you know, not just picking on the retail guys. I mean, it's been a tough trade um, and it's nice uh, on some level and it's certainly uh, right back there in the, the messaging around some of these gambling songs and the grateful dead. There, there is no generational trade. That's simple. Right. I mean, it's just, it doesn't exist. Um, so back to loser, you know, um, um, I, I just, you know, I think it's frustrating. And, and at times there's been a chorus, um, out there that's, that's probably been overly bullish on, on, on how this is going to play out. And, um, with, in hindsight, of course, that looks crystal clear. And I, you know, um, I, 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 as a guy that has to get up on TV every night and talk about markets and at times been at, and I'm asked to, to make a call one way or the other on stuff. Um, you know, look, investing is humbling and, 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 and in many cases, extremely complicated and challenging, um, on top of then layering in the emotional side of, of how humans behave when they're trading and investing. And, and I think you've wrapped that all into a cannabis uh, conundrum. Well, Tim, uh, we love having you on the show. and I'd love to have you back at another time. We know you got to get up to Massachusetts here in a little bit. So I'm going to ask you one final question on this kind of related to what we were saying. And that's, you know, when it comes to the bot deal right now, which is more of the institutional investor, mostly the Toronto guys, um, right now, anytime someone's going out there and announcing a bot deal, they're actually getting crucified in the market. And I think, you know, the most obvious one the last couple of days when everything else is rallying is high tide up in Canada just announced a $10 million transaction and went down 20% yesterday uh, because it was seen to be as a relatively dilutive transaction. So, you know, when you think about the exuberance that's coming back in the market, it still doesn't change the institutional guys can actually wipe you out if it's not the right transaction. Like, do you have any thoughts about that? And, and as you pontificate, uh, we'll end the show with um, a clip of deal of, you know, kind of don't you let that deal go down from, I think, 71889 from Buffalo. But I'd love to know your thoughts on, you know, are the institutional guys going to you know, beat these beat these companies up as they're trying to raise new capital right now. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think there's two sides of this. Uh, and, and actually let me first say, uh, this has been a ton of fun. I love this conversation in so many different ways. So, um, you know, please have me back. Um, and, and these cross currents of, of thoughts are, are, uh, uh, it's no accident. Right. So, um, I love what you guys are doing. The, the, from a market's perspective and right, there's, there's always going to be someone out there promoting and trying to raise money 
and trying to um, you know position a company uh, on the capital market side. There's always going to be you know a story that looks better than it is, and 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 I I think just the message here is that investors really need to do their work as best you can, um, and that. You know, bought deals as an example. In many cases, obviously, there's you know there's there's a player who's underwritten, put their own capital to work, and almost feels entitled to be able to um, then manipulate the market. And 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 obviously, um, and in some cases, that manipulation has already happened um, in the pricing of that company in the less liquid public markets that they trade in. Um, so I, I, like, you know, cannabis is not any different than some other sectors that have seen this, um, certainly the commodity space. And, um, like I, I, you know, I'll just say this about our friends in Canada and they are our friends. I mean, you know, it's, it's patronizing to, to even start to say, no, they're great. It's Canada. They're our neighbors. They're our friends. They're, they're, you know, they're just as talented and smart and, and, and this and that as we are. Their capital markets rules and their regulatory environment is different. So, um, you know, one of the great things that's going to happen to the cannabis markets is that U.S. regulators are going to bring this great U.S. industry onshore. That's what I want. Um, and, and I want to play by rules that are governed by the SEC and, and the exchanges. And I think that's going to be one of the great things to happen. And obviously that's something that's wrapped up in some of this legislation that we've been talking about tonight. Absolutely. Well, Tim, thank you so much. We um, really, really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Um, I'll hope all of our listeners will now, if you're not already followers of Tim, that you will become so, because uh, he obviously has a lot of uh, very useful and helpful knowledge in this area. Um, and we will certainly be looking forward to speaking with you again in the future. That's awesome, guys. Thanks a lot. And thanks for what you're doing. And uh, uh, here's to seeing you back soon. Very good. Thank you, Tim. Rob, any last words? Yeah, I mean, for everyone out there that uh, might not have heard earlier, our guest today has been Tim Seymour of CNBC, also of Amplify ETF, uh, one of the best guys in the industry to take advice from or even just to listen to to understand how the markets are working right now in cannabis. So it's an absolute honor to have him on the show. Um, with that, we will uh, let everyone listen to a little bit of The Grateful Dead uh, playing one of their greatest gambling tunes, Deal, from Buffalo, uh, from Rich Stadium on 7 And with that, signing off from Fisher Island, New York, thanks to Tim Seymour, thanks to Dan Humiston, and to uh, Larry Mishkin. And we'll see you next week on the Dead of Canvas Show. Listening to today's show. 
To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has can of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network.